You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Cliff, how you doing, bud? I'm doing all right, man. How are you doing? Oh, no complaints, no complaints. No complaints? You're not trying very hard. <laughs> uh, I actually got another thing to complain about today. It's, it's uh, nice and cold. I got a jacket and long pants and wool socks on. Oh, man. Man, I would take that. It's 90 degrees here in Portland right now or you know, outside of Portland where I am, out in boring Oregon. So, lucky you. Yeah, it's 54, foggy, and north winds, cold wind. Oh, man. You know, it's funny, man. All winter long, I think, I can't wait till summer. And all summer long, I go, man, I can't wait till it cools down. Yeah. The, gra- the grass is always greener. The temperature is always better, you know, somewhere else. Yeah. Oh, poor unenlightened us. I got out last week for four nights. That was cool up in Oregon. Um, uh, Southern Oregon or further north? Southern Oregon. It was the, the aggravating part was at one point, me and the, the sound guy were taking a, a break. We climbed in our tents. The mosquitoes were so bad in this spot. I mean, just as it was like Alaska or something. And uh, we were taking a break, and the cameraman took off to, uh, to um, go do something else. And then there was, there was another woman with us. And I thought, I was like, we started hearing someone walking behind the, uh, in the brush behind where we were, like, I don't know, 50, 50 yards out. And I was like, I called her name a couple times and, no answer and I thought well it must be well it must be her I don't know we were thinking like well you know she's out there somewhere and then it turned out she was taking a nap and she she heard us but she didn't answer because she was listening to the same thing walking huh so she's just staying still in case it was something scary um she just wanted to see what it was and dude we could have it was it was right there I mean it, it, if I all I had to do was get out of the tent and Look up, and uh, who knows what I would have seen. But there, well, it had something. to be a Bigfoot, right? It had to be a Bigfoot because you blew a really good opportunity. Exactly. <laughs> well, at least you got out, man. I haven't been out for a while. I'm going out tomorrow, though. Going out to the Blueberry Bog um, now that the mosquitoes have kind of died down slightly. Uh, some of the team went out there earlier in the month, but they were chased out by the mosquitoes, man. It's been really bad this year. But, Dude, it's a horrible year. It's, and for how dry it is, you know, and under, you know, drought everywhere there's a ton of mosquitoes yeah yeah but you know i'm pretty content with the bigfoot stuff that's been coming my way the north american bigfoot center has been producing i got two report or two excellent witnesses in today no actually three thinking about it but yeah one guy saw one up by la push you know back in 1979 or 1980 or something um Mm -hmm. it was on the beach it was doing something in the water there you know just playing it like with its hands um then this other dude uh, lives like in one of the zones I've been investigating, and um, he had seen them twice, uh, or actually tw- more than twice, twice up by Lake Merwin in Washington, and then three times um, kind of near his home in one of the zones that we've been keeping our eye on here at the NABC. So uh, we exchanged numbers with that gentleman. He's going to keep us posted, and uh, yeah, I think he's going to be an excellent contact for us. Awesome. Yeah, he even sent me a photograph of a footprint that he found, and I think it's real. I think it's legit, man. It's it's got the toes. It's got it's fifteen inches long. It looks looks pretty rad. So today was a pretty encouraging day, if you ask me. Cool, that's great to hear. Yeah, pretty stoked. 
Well, you know, uh, Bobo, I'm kind of excited about another reason, too, is that uh, we are going to do something special, a, a kind of episode we have yet to do until today, kind of the inaugural sort of episode. It's the Bigfoot and Beyond Q&A with Cliff and Bobo. Um, if, ever, if our listeners remember, or if our listeners are even paying attention to our social media, because it is social media, and gosh, social media is just terrible. It's, it's, it's this viper pit, you know? But on our social media, I think it was on our Facebook and our Twitter, we put out a, a question for our listeners, um, people who follow us on our Facebook, uh, Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast, and also on our Twitter. What questions would you like to ask Cliff and Bobo? And we got a lot of responses, and we are going to go down the list and answer as many as we can in the time that we have today. So uh, this is kind of a new feature that we'll be doing occasionally, um, Bigfoot and Beyond Q&A with Cliff and Bobo. So let's start. Let's, let's jump into the pit here and see what we have going on. Uh, let me reach into the bag, my magic bag here, and pull out the first question. This question comes from Paul McDonald, and um, his question is this. What piece of technology will help move the subject closer to being recognized as a legitimate species? Okay, so basically, what, what piece of technology are we going to need to kind of move the ball downfield to get closer to actual academic acceptance of the species? Bobo, you have any thoughts on that? A thermoscope on a high-powered rifle. Yeah, and for, you know, or a big old truck at the right place at the right time, because at the end of the day, we're going to need a body. Um, but... That's for proof, for absolute proof, we're going to need a body. Um, but maybe that's not what um, Paul is asking here, because he did say, help move the subject closer to being recognized as a legitimate species. So um, I think the thermal drones are a pretty good uh, pretty good one. And, and these new lower-priced um, smaller therms like those pulsars that you can mm -hmm. monitor, you can plug it in and run it on Bluetooth, and you can be sitting inside 100 yards away monitoring a chicken coop or, you know, or whatever. Yeah, I think thermal imaging has come a long ways. So the prices drop significantly, so it can be in a lot of people's hands if you save up a little bit of money. Um, and But, you know, I was thinking um, thermal imaging would be nice. It would be really good. But, you know, if you're not a thermal imaging nerd, it may not mean a lot to you. Like when you and I looked at the the, the Stacy Brown footage, we, we, are, we had our socks blown off. It was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. But a lot of people didn't really get what they were looking at. So I, again, I think I'm going to go back to like just video cameras. I think that uh, video cameras, if used um, effectively and repeatedly, like if we can get a lot of footage, then more and more people will start paying attention. And I think that will move the ball further downfield. In fact, I was having a conversation with Dr. Todd Disatel about this very thing. Um, Todd was telling me, it's like, well, you know what? You may not need a body. I went, well, what do you mean, Todd? I mean, you're the scientist. Like, what, I'm going to listen very closely to what you say here. What are you talking about? He goes, Cliff, in my opinion, I think that if we had repeated video footage, like good video footage, combined with repeated footprint cast evidence, combined with repeated DNA from the same area, that would go a long ways, if not like really close the book on discovery. Now, of course, that would just garner a lot of attention from academics and whatnot. Then they would send out the folks with the high-powered rifles, and eventually a specimen would be obtained. But to move the ball further downfield, I think any of those things 
um, if utilized and repeatedly uh, were successful, that would do a lot towards kind of opening the eyes of the academic community and getting more attention on the subject. And that's what we need because after the academics really are paying attention to this and analyzing the evidence and really diving in deep, they're going to see that the evidence is strong and it stands on its own. Um, and that's what we need more qualified eyes on the evidence that we already have and the stuff that we can potentially get. And that's going to turn the page for a lot of academics, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. Yeah, therms are great. And, you know, I'd like to film one. And therms certainly, I think, are the easiest way to get that footage. But unless you have those twenty-five, you know, $30,000 units that can, you know, measure things precisely and you're a thermographer and you can de decipher those sort of things, what are they going to mean to the average Joe? You know, what are they going to mean to the anatomists or the primatologists essentially? Well, yeah, it's just to get their attention, right? I guess, I guess. Yeah. Get their attention. It's like, Oh, that's really interesting and compelling. But imagine having 20 pieces of footage from one property, you know, it's like what the Erickson project intended to do. Right. What's our next question? Let's see what we got here. Jeff Miller asks us, do either of you realize just how much we miss you both on Finding Bigfoot? I've seen Cliff on a few other shows, but it's not the same. We need more of both of you. Well, that's very sweet. Thank you, Jeff Miller. That was kind words. Yeah, very, very kind words. I don't know, Bobes. I mean, how much do you get from people that, that we are missed? A lot. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very nice. I, I'm, I'm super flattered and, you know humbled to some degree about all that. And I really, really do appreciate the kind words. I heard a lot here at the NABC and I get emails and stuff about when the show, when's the show coming back? Yeah. Cause what, you know, they, they may ask, be asking when the show's coming back, but what they're really saying is that we miss the show. Right. Um, it's very, very kind. And which is also part of the reason we're doing Bigfoot and beyond at all. Cause after, you know, a few hundred of those messages, I'm thinking I already talked to Bobo every week. Let's start doing a podcast and people can hang out with us. Yeah. And you can't, you can't see us, but you can at least hang out with us. I'm the one that proposed the podcast. Okay, Bubs, you can have that. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. It was. <laughs> Maybe we should do a podcast. <laughs> We're geniuses. We are geniuses, or at least you are. Thanks for having me along, Bubs. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Let's see, what's our next question here? Here, I got this one. This one is from uh, Rio T. Great show, guys. I listen every Monday in the UK. If you were approached by a TV channel to have your own show to go after Bigfoot, how would you attack it? If, say, you're given a limitless budget and a time scale of three months, would you stay in just one place or follow reports? I'd, I'd go out to Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia area, Ohio, and kind of just wing it from there. Unlimited budget, though. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, you gotta have some realistic parameters. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. But I do think that uh, that area out in Kentucky and Tennessee and stuff, that is a very promising location. A lot of stuff comes out of there with very, well, not very little effort, but, the, but with the consistent effort by the people who are out there. No TV show is going to do that. It'd have to be like if you were, you know, Netflix or Hulu and you had a huge budget and you had three months, what would you do? I'd get like a squat, you know, like, like a, the Fleer motorhome that had the periscopes coming up. And I'd get a something like that with just cameras all the way around it. I, if we had a huge budget, I mean, yeah, I'd go to some like the the really good um, habituation sites where they come in all the time on certain farms or cabins or remote properties and rig up some uh, cameras there, thermal imagers there, and then uh, 
have a mobile unit and have a couple stand, you know, maybe have extra teams. You know, you have some guys like a half mile away or a mile away. They can send up a, if you got something going on there, they can, so you're not launching a, you're not launching a drone yourself. It can come in from, you know, the next ridge over. So a little less uh, uh, intrusive, you know, I've thought about this so much. And uh, yeah, you'd have to have a good, you know, just baiting them as it gets expensive. You put out good food for them all the time. And, um, I think, yeah, just, uh, I'd, I'd stay in like a general zone, like, yeah, that Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, Ohio zone. That's where I'd go. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd stay in one spot though. Cause it seems that after, you know, a few days or a week or something, if we're there and, and they're not interested in, you know, interacting or, you know, showing themselves, they may move on in which yeah. case staying in one spot may not be the most uh, productive way to do it. Yeah. I just have like a 200 mile radius. I'd stay in. Oh, I don't even think it needs to be that big. It's probably just a, you know, five by seven mile area. You know, like like look at the area X for example, or the spots that Tom Shea's been working, or you know, any of these things. Like uh, those little pockets, like the, the Queets Reservation or something up in the on the peninsula. Like th- there's Bigfoots there fairly often. You know, or the Quinault Reservation. Any of the any of the reservations up in um in, on the Olympic Peninsula. Yeah, if you just had a focused area, you know, uh, th- this this unlimited budget thing was I was kind of tossing that around while you were talking there, and it reminded me of a of a portion of Dr. Grover Krantz's excellent book, um, Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence, which I'm assuming all of our audience members have read because it's kind of required reading. Oh, of course, you might be getting the first edition, which is Big Footprints, but the second edition, which is Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence, everyone should read that. If you have not read it, go buy it right now. It's it's kind of required reading. But one of the things he mentions in that book is um, a way to get them, um, which would be uh, unattainable. Like you couldn't do this, but if you could, it would work. And he was saying like, okay, get the military, get somebody like that, right? Get some entity that has uh, more people than you need. And he says, okay, put each person six foot apart in a line from Puget Sound all the way to the Pacific Ocean and march north. It would be very, very difficult, almost impossible. But again, this is a not possible approach, but it would work. And if if people six feet apart marched northward, they would eventually run into a Sasquatch. Somebody on that line would eventually run into a Sasquatch. It's like those grid searches, you know, from Finding Mm -hmm. Bigfoot, but, you know, times 10,000. Um, and of course, Grover also goes on to comments like at some point a Bigfoot would stand up and you, know, you have a couple of startled witnesses and that's all that would come from it. But if you were working with people who are highly trained or perhaps carrying rifles or, or cameras or whatever the goal was doing that, you would flush a fair number of Bigfoots out in front of you. You just would. Um, if you could keep that line, you know, like hand, like hands across America, this would be like squatch across the peninsula. Um, that would work. And if we're talking about unlimited budget, pie in the sky, anything goes sort of techniques, that would work. And I think that would be a really interesting thing to do. Make it happen, Cliff. Uh, I'm on it. Because you know me, I love hanging out with as many people as possible. <laughs> <laughs> we quiet introverts love doing that <laughs> yeah but I, I i really yeah i mean if we if we could i'd i'd find some the best residences that have you know consistent action where they come in raiding chicken coops or gardens and get that wired up or wireless up and then um, i'd put out cameras further out in the property facing in towards the property like a couple hundred yards out hoping to catch one you know before it goes on full alert coming in yeah, well, you know what we need are 360 cameras. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, put a few dozen of those around these properties that things things go on. You know, because there's one property that I, I I work with the property owner sometimes, and and they are convinced, and they've now convinced me that the Sasquatches know exactly where they can walk to not set off those motion sensor lights, and that's where they're seeing them. You know, mm-hmm. they, they're kind of they're, it's like the, an invisible labyrinth that they're navigating in order to get close to the house, and you know, not stick their head up too far because if they go another six inches up, then all of a sudden that light comes on, or you know, that kind of thing. The Bigfoots know they got the places wired, um, and, and so if we had like three sixty cameras, a few dozen of those peppered around the property, probably get footage eventually. I think. Yeah, I think so. And I, I had a thermal, I had a motion sensor thermal camera on on these people's property for years, and nothing really happened out of it. Um, so it's kind of befuddling in that sort of way. But I'm confident that they, I know Bigfoots can be photographed. I know it because I've seen photographs of Sasquatches that I think are real. So it's just a matter of getting the right technology that maybe they either can't detect or they get used to. Um, I think I think that would make an intriguing TV show because going back to the question, he did ask about a TV show. And to have a TV show, you have to entertain the audience or it's not going to be a TV show. And I think development of technology and stuff would be an interesting avenue that really hasn't been explored yet. Well, like even Les Stroud, I mean, everyone's like, I mean, you watch his show and it's basically the same as ours. He went in the same amount of time. He was his own boss. And, but he still had to go with the TV format, which you know hinders hinders the show. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard lesson to learn. I mean, it was I know it was a hard lesson to learn for uh, for us on Finding Bigfoot. Is you know it's like, well, no, turn those lights off, and then, and, you know, of course, well, they're saying, well, dude, without a light, no one can see what you're doing, and we're not actually making a TV show anymore. We're making radio. You know, so it's it's a hard thing to a hard line to walk, I guess. You know, true that. Okay, you ready for the next question, Bobes? It's your turn. All right, here we go. Devin Sawyer. Dear Cliff and Bobo, I've been looking at the Patterson and Gimlin film, and I think it's real, but I'm having a hard time trying to accept accept it. So my question is, what is the line going down the creature's back? I think it's just fur. Above the spine, where the spine runs down, the, the hair comes together there. Yeah, that's, that's always been my interpretation of it. And, you know, if you look at the back of the creature as it walks away, there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's a couple lines that you can see. And it turns out I can see those same lines on my dog because what, what you're seeing is kind of into the fur. It's like where, you know, fur lays in, I, should, I shouldn't say fur because Sasquatches don't have fur. They have hair like all other primates do. Um, like we don't have fur. You know, I, I'm rather furry, but I, it's all hair at the end of the day. Um the, the hair lays certain directions, you know, and um, where the hair changes directions, uh, it, it kind of looks like there's a line there. And like the, there's a really prominent line above the creature's butt, above her buttocks, because, you know, the butt sticks out a little bit because Sasquatches have really well-developed butt muscles. And so the hair lays at a different angle there. And you can kind of see like down the shaft of the fur a little bit. You know what I mean? It looks like a darker line. I see the same thing on my dog. You can see the same thing in a lot of other animals when the hair sticks out. Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's also interpretations of this of the Patterson-Gimlin film where they say that she raises her hackles on the back of her shoulders and neck, you know. Um, I think it's called piloerection, I think, when the hair stands up. Uh, all, you know, chimpanzees do it. You know, we do it. You know, all primates do it. You know, oh, the hair stood up in the back of my neck. That's what that is. It's a natural response to the environment. And this creature was clearly agitated, I think, in some sort of way. I mean, she walks calmly away, but she doesn't, I don't think she's very happy about being seen. She raises her hackles up when Bob crossed the river with his rifle. Well, there you go. 
Yeah, so I think that line is just a natural consequence of the hair laying in different directions, and you're kind of seeing a different shade of the of the hair because of that. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, yeah, people say it's a zipper. It's like that's not a zipper. I've, we've looked. I mean, we've looked at a 4K blown up version. You know, eight foot tall, big one, and there's no no zipper. No, no, and there's no zipper in there. And of course, if there is a zipper, there's a zipper around the butt and every other place that the hair changes direction. And the, and the so it's a weird suit that zips up like that. Then um, even the even the uh, the skeptics say I'll kind of say I don't see a zipper. The only people who ever did see a zipper, I think, was that back in like the '90s or early 2000. Chris Murphy and Cliff Crook got together and said that there's some some sort of bell artifact hanging from it. But yeah. then it turns out that that was proven to be um, impossible because of the grain of the footage, and that turned out to be a nothing. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. Yeah, there's no zipper there, but that's what that line is anyway. It's it's basically the hair changing directions and causing a little aberration, you know, in some sort. Ready for the next question, Bobo? I'm ready. Okay. This next one comes from Paul Burns. Um, Paul was saying, uh, wondering if anyone has thought of trying or has tried putting small, tiny GPS sensors in like apples or peanut butter or whatever else, and some sort of thing as bait or to feed the Sasquatch. Well, you know, people have thought of that. And one guy actually even donated a small GPS unit to the NABC to try that, but it wasn't actually that small. I mean, I think that, like, I don't know, Bob, have you ever, certainly, I think all of us have put food in our mouth at one point and found, like, maybe something small and inorganic in it, right? Like a, a grain yeah. of sand, for example. Um, and we, of course, we immediately pull that out of our mouths and spit it out. Um, this GPS unit that this gentleman um, donated to the NABC was a few centimeters in diameter. It's like, how are you going to get a guy to chew that? You right. know, I guess they could, but I wouldn't. I mean, I I could swallow that, but I, I would never do. I wouldn't even swallow a piece of sand if I could. You know, and I, I think all of us have that experience. So, um, yeah, like the North American Wood Ape Conservancy with that uh, cockleberry thing, that, you know, glued on the transmitter, then it snags the fur. And we're pretty sure that was a Bigfoot. They tracked that for like a, almost a year. Yeah, I think that's probably a better way to go. I don't think that one could probably trick a Sasquatch into eating a GPS tracker. I think that that would probably be a hard one. And I'm just basing that on my own personal experience. And, and you know, the listeners have their own personal experience. Maybe they agree, maybe they don't. Um, it, wouldn't, but, it wouldn't work until it took a crap either. Well, I don't know. That's a, yeah. Would it even work inside of a body like that? Would it even transmit effectively? That's another good I don't question. Think so I don't know. You just find out where it took a poo, and that's about it. Yeah, which is another good question. Like, where do they do that? You know, that's that's something I'd like to know. Um, you know, I don't want to get personal or nebby or something with them. By the way, nebby is a word I learned from my wife. It's a Pittsburghese sort of thing. It means nosy. I don't know if you knew that or not, Bobs. Never Did heard you? of it. Yeah, I never heard of it either until she moved in with me. She has a lot of uh, interesting words, and I'm sure my Pittsburghese uh, or our Pittsburghese listeners are going. Of course, of course, we know what that is. Ah, you know, they all talk like a peculiarly out there. Did you know shopping carts are buggies? By the way, no, I didn't know that either. She started talking about. I'm going to return the buggy, and I, what are you talking about? There's a lot of things. She reads up around the house. It's like I love to read. She goes, No, no, I'm cleaning. Why did you just say cleaning? So I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Sidetracked, but anyway, yeah, I think a, a way better uh, option here is to have it affixed to the fur somehow. 
just like the North American Wood Ape Conservancy did. If anybody's interested in the study, they have a paper that's published on woodape.org. Just dig around on the website, you'll find it. Really interesting stuff. Um, it, we don't know it, 100% for sure, completely convinced, absolutely it was a Sasquatch. Um, but I, I'm, I'm inclined to think they actually got it. I think they got it right. And a, a few more trials like this would be very, very interesting to see the results and how they compare to the, what happened before. So, Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. All right, Bobes, hit it. Craig Brush, something simple. What was the first car which each of you ever owned? Was he trying to get our passwords or something? <laughs> it was a 67 VW bus split windshield, paid $97 oh, for. Oh, my God. I bet you're bummed you didn't have that. No, you don't have that anymore. Oh, uh, you know it. Holy smokes. What a rad car that is. I'd love to have a VW bus. Yep, it was pretty... Topping out at 52 miles an hour and the <laughs> going pedal to the metal. <laughs> no, yeah, oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, mine was, uh, I don't remember what year, I think it was in 1986 Chevy Sprint. Yeah, like those little tiny, you know, compact things, oh, yeah, Chevy yeah. Sprint. Yeah, I had that for a few years and kind of drove it into the ground. Then I got one of those Geo Metros, which kind of replaced it. And man, I really missed that car. It got legitimately 45 or 50 miles a gallon. Yeah, those things were sweet. I had one in Hawaii. Oh my God, they're rad. I'd love to have one now because now I, you know, I've got a Jeep and it gets 18 if I'm lucky. I wish I got that. Yeah, why has the mileage gone down? I don't understand that. I thought techn- technology is supposed to push us forward and not just feed these giant corporations my dollars, you know, but. Yeah, I was getting 45 miles a gallon back in 1980, you know, 1990, and now I'm getting 18. What in the world? They still make good cars. They're just not going to get four-wheel drive that you can put a bunch of stuff in. Oh, I know. Oh, but you saw, I'm sure you, bought, you saw, I'm, we're not sponsored by anybody, by the way, but how about that electric uh, um, truck thing that Ford's coming out with? Pretty oh, interesting. Oh, dude, so sick. Yeah, and then that the best thing about it is, isn't necessarily the Ford or anything, but the best thing about it is that that is going to kickstart some sort of race with all the big truck manufacturers, and so they're pretty much all going to be electric at some point. Um, and I even read that the electric is going to have a bigger pulling capacity, I guess, than the than the the one fifties that they have out in the road now. Oh yeah, yeah big time. Very encouraging. Very, very encouraging. Because, you know, I mean, I'm going to be honest with everybody. I'm pretty much an environmentalist. I, I mostly vote environmental things because I care about Sasquatches. And that's one of the only things we can do at this point to help them, to help protect them, is to protect the environment in which they and us live. So, yeah, I'm fully for the electric vehicle stuff. So, and uh, don't yeah. get me wrong, I drive gas vehicles, always have, probably always will, but um, I will, I would love to, uh, not to give the oil companies more money if I can help it. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, next question then. Oh, Stevie Strings, Stafford. Oh, man. Stevie Strings. I, I hope this is the same Stevie Strings it that we is. hung out with in Florida, yeah, right? It is. Oh, right on, Stevie. Well, he- hello, my friend. Out of all the encounters you two must have heard, what is each one of your favorite encounter stories? Oh, man. What do you think, Bobes? That's a tough one. That's a real tough one. My favorite, I guess, would be my first night that I had that for sure encounter in 2001 because it was my own story. Yeah, your own story, right? Right. You know, I, I have a I have a hard time with favorites. 
because there's so many good ones of whatever we're talking about, whether it's Bigfoot stories or casts or, you know, or beers or whatever it is that we're talking about. And when we say favorite, it kind of puts all the other ones like second in line. And I never liked that so much because I, I like, I like a lot of things. Um, I like the stories that support my hypotheses of where they are. I like those. Like, like, uh, today, for example, I heard, um, this, this guy, I mentioned it earlier, this guy was in the shop and he had seen these things three times in the general neighborhood of where he lives, which is also where we've been pulling tracks this year. We've pulled several footprint casts out of this particular area. And one of his stories that he told me, he saw a Sasquatch on the road at pretty much exactly the same spot, like within 10 yards of the same spot, but two years apart. Wow. That's interesting to me. That's really interesting to me because I think what we got there is the halibut effect. And if you don't know what the halibut effect is, Moneymaker wrote it up on the BFRO site, but it's basically that uh, where Sasquatches were once, they will still be there, assuming that the location has not significantly changed, you know, like paved it over basically. Um, and, and this is an extreme example, of course, um, because the Sasquatch was seen on the same road within 10 yards of the same spot. And we know it's the same spot because there's this gate right there. So maybe it's coming down that road. Maybe that's a really good spot to put a camera. I don't know. But those are the ones I I love the most. So it's not the most amazing encounter. It's not the most jaw-dropping, dramatic thing that you've ever heard. It's actually something that will help us, or help me at least, maybe either see one or get footage or gain more evidence, maybe some footprints. Um, Because everybody knows I'm not a story guy. I'm an evidence guy. And I want more of that. So I like the stories that show me a l- that shed a little bit of a light on their habits, because maybe we can get something out of it. I didn't think of that angle, but yeah, it makes sense. I, I'm an angular thinker. <laughs> oh, Terry Weekly. No, Terry. See, do you guys believe baby Sasquatch stay with their mothers as long as chimps and gorillas babies do? I'd say yeah, for sure. If not, if not longer. I mean. I've got some uh, anecdotal evidence that they um, will drop them when they get big into a like a boarding school for like ju- ju- uh, sub adolescents and adolescents, like Hogwarts. Um, yeah, I guess I'm not a nerd. I wouldn't know that stuff. But oh, right, you're not a nerd. You just look for Bigfoot. Oh, sorry about that, Cliff. I can only say that because I'm I'm out of punching distance right now. <laughs> Nothing nerdy about the squatch or the bows, but anyways. Uh, yeah, so I mean, they might get dropped off when they get to, too big to be carried around in in the food, you know. Like, uh, I don't, I, I wouldn't know why they do it exactly. Maybe if food gets tighter, just a cultural thing for them to bond up with each other and build ties before they go out as adults on their own separate ways. But um, yeah, they, they'd have to. They'd, they'd have to. I mean, the the more intelligent the uh, animal, the longer they stay with the mother. Yeah, I would think that they probably stick around. Of course, you know, in chimpanzees and gorillas, there's a whole troop, right. you know, and I, I, I kind of think that, you know, it takes a village to raise a child sort of thing is exaggerated in the troop situation. Um, and Sasquatches, of course, don't travel in troops. They probably travel in family groups based on the evidence that's out there, at least like basically means smaller groups, you know, like two or three, four individuals or something in an area. Um, but there have been, uh, observations of Sasquatches, you know, with like, a like, a, a an adult and two smaller ones associated with it, you know, maybe even twins or something like that. There have been observations of this sort of thing. And, uh, and I, I think that there's even been observations of three approximately similarly sized Sasquatches, which might be an adult and two juveniles, just like mountain lions do. 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing they probably stick around for you know eight or ten years or twelve years or something like that until they're sexually mature and uh, move on. I guess don't really know, but that's part of the reason that I'm so into gathering the evidence, like footprint casts, because tracking them over time will give us a little bit of insight into that. Stories probably won't, unless they uh, look remarkably different. Like if there's a red one, a white one, and a black one, or something like that, then we can perhaps track individuals over time. But the footprints, I think, are the best avenue forward into learning a little bit about how they live and their social structure like that. Yeah. Okay, next question, I guess, comes from Leela Sonmeze. Sonmeze? 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 I don't know. Sonmeze. It's amazing. There you go. Okay. Well, Leela, nonetheless, she says, hello, just want to first say, I love your guys' work and have been a huge fan since I was a young kid. That's right, Bobes. We're old. <laughs> Any advice for someone who'd like to start bigfooting in their adult life? Well, I wouldn't know about being an adult and going bigfooting. Yeah. The, the old Nike commercial says, just do it. Just do it. Now, actually, honestly, my best advice for anybody is to go for another reason. Um, because most people see Sasquatches or encounter them while doing something else like camping or fishing or driving or whatever. Um, because if you go Bigfooting just to run into a Bigfoot, you're going to come back disappointed more times than not. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you go out in the woods to pick mushrooms or go for a hike or to go camping with your friends or to go fishing, you'll always be successful pretty much when you come back and maybe Bigfoots will show up. That's yeah. I'd say that's a good, good advice. I'm, if you can if you can hook up with a good uh, local group, or um, get get on an expedition like BFRO or whatever, um, like some you know reputable group, that's a great way. Um, contact your national forest is a good place to go. Contact your uh, ranger district. Look on look on the BFRO database, bfro.net. Go to sightings and look in your area, and uh, look for like a national forest that you can go out and bang around it and make some noise and just make sure you got, even if it's an old cell phone, just on voice recorder, make sure you have some kind of audio recording working because that's usually yeah, you'll hear them more than anything else. Yeah. And I think when you're choosing a location, um, using the BFRO database or whatever local re research group is in your area, like if you're in Kentucky, you know, look up um, Charlie Raymond stuff, Kentucky Bigfoot Research or whatever they call themselves. And I don't remember. I just know Charlie, but um, I'm not a group guy either. As, KBRO. As KBR, there you go. Look up their sightings base, the sightings database. Look up the, the the stuff that happens near you and look for clusters. Now, of course, this is Bigfoot, so the data is rather scarce. So a cluster is likely to be two or three reports. It doesn't have to be like 25 reports or something. But if you can find two or three reports within a five-mile area, that's a cluster for Bigfoot data. And start going there. I am becoming increasingly confident that Sasquatches hang out in the same areas for a long time. Uh, maybe it's a seasonal thing, but they're always going to come back to that same area for whatever resource they're going after there. And so if you can find a cluster of reports within a five-mile area, that helps you narrow down a bigger area pretty quick. And then when you got that five or eight mile area that you're looking at, start looking in there, like get in Google Earth and get in real deep. Look for choke points, look for uh, vantage points where Sasquatches can perch up and watch the deer herds move by. Look for swamps, look for water sources, look for avenues of travel, all of those things. And then start learning about the other wildlife in the area and to find out what they do because Sasquatches are either doing the same thing or following them. Yeah, if you can find a place like that has rocky outcroppings and right below, down below there, there's like meadows and swamp areas, that you, you can't go wrong with that. 
Yeah, because those rocky outcroppings will help your vocalizations or sounds bounce around. And also, the Bigfoots have been seen a lot up in those rocky outcroppings. Um, some people think that it's because you can't leave footprints. Um, I tend to think that it's actually because the rocks are warmer and it's just more comfortable and easy to move around in. Uh, who knows why, but we do know that Sasquatches, as well as other animals like mountain lions and stuff, hang out in those spots. Uh, those little nooks and crannies they can get into and hide easily or move around. They love that stuff, I think. Yeah, I think so. You would think so, right? Yeah, totally. Just look at the data and check it out. I can think of a couple reports where uh, people came over a rocky outcropping and saw one like sunning himself. Like there's this one biologist uh, I used to speak to uh, or uh, email with, and that's how he saw his he, in the Marble Mountains. Came over this rocky ledge, and there it was. He thought it was an orangutan spread out on the rocks below him, you know, until it looked at him, then squeezed through this little crack between the rocks and scared the heck out of him because it moved so strangely. I remember that story. That was down to by me. Yeah, it was. It was. Okay. All right. Go ahead, Bob. It's your turn. Justin Crammies? Crams? 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 Something. Justin, anyway. Hey, guys. Love the podcast and the old stories. My question for you is not Bigfoot related, but here it is. You get to attend one concert for an artist dead or alive. Who would you guys go see? One concert, dead or alive, huh? <sighs> Mozart. Ooh. Well played. Yeah, I was thinking a little bit more modern, honestly, but yeah, that's a really interesting one. You know what? I think going back that far, I would probably say Bach, J.S. Bach. Because, man, you listen to Bach's music, and it is it is essentially like intricate math heavy metal rock on a different instrument. You know, like the most intricate, like King Crimson sort of stuff. That's what this dude was doing in the 1600s. And, and of course, I'm going to you know bounce off Mozart here, too. Both Mozart and Bach were, were renowned um, all throughout Europe, you know, their little world there of having the most amazing improvisational skills, you know, because nowadays we can sit down and read a chart or whatever, read a Mozart piece and just the way he wrote it. But the thing is, that's not the way he played it. All those guys back in the day, and even nowadays, of course, too, they didn't play it like that. They, they played it maybe once through like that. And then the next four or five times, they would make stuff up as they went. And apparently they were just blew all everybody away and not just average folk either, not just the listeners. They blew other musicians away like Haydn and people like that who would, would be were contemporaries. They would listen to them like, holy smokes. But you know what? One concert, now that I'm talking and blabbing, it would be that first time that Beethoven's ninth was ever played anywhere where he was actually conducting along with another conductor because Beethoven was dead at the, or not dead. He wasn't dead. He was deaf at the time. So they allowed him to stand in the conductor's area and conduct, but he was totally deaf at the time. And it turns out that uh, the, the music that was being conducted by the conductor who could hear finished a little bit before Beethoven's version did, but everybody, but everybody was kind of quiet and out of politeness, let him finish. Um, so I think that first, um, that first uh, concert where Beethoven's ninth was played at the very, very first time, that's where I would want to be. I can live with that. And if, it's, if you're talking modern, I'd probably go with, I don't know, you always hear people say you should have seen Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, that's who I keep coming back to as well. Because I've seen The Dead, you know, like, like 20, 30 times. Um, I, but Hendrix, that would really be something. Yeah, I'd say seeing, um, seeing Floyd, uh, Pink Floyd, those, those are the best shows I think I've ever seen. Yeah, I've, I've seen Pink Floyd twice, but doing it back in the day would be kind of cool. Yeah, I saw him in 82 for the first time. So the, but if I would have saw like the 73, 75, 77, somewhere in there, like that would have been pretty sick. 
Okay, next next one here is uh, from Lynn Lawrence. Um, on Finding Bigfoot, Birth of a Legend, are there any other insights about the rock-throwing incident and the eye shine from Cliff and Renee's encounter? It was one of the most riveting captures for a viewer. Can you expand upon that night? Oh, yeah, that was a great episode. That was a lot of fun, too, because uh, that honestly scared Renee. That was a oh, lot of fun. I... Actually, yeah, remember we were, on, we were on the Hooper Reservation after the helicopter ride oh, and you one. and Matt went on? Oh, okay. I was thinking of the final episode. The, yeah, the, the first time we went there. Yeah, Birth of a Legend, when we got to go horseback riding with Gimlin down to the PG yeah, site. And, yeah. yeah, talk about a, a, a bucket list item, huh? That, that was a crazy, that was one of the craziest episodes we had. I mean, when I was flying in that helicopter, there was a white orb ball flying behind us. <laughs> oh, jeez. Then, really? Uh, we, and then the guy, the guy got kind of lost, the pilot, and he flipped on the 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 uh, spotlight that comes on it lights up the landing zone and all that. And right when he flipped it on, there was these two guys on on the res. One guy had like a deer, like a I don't know, like a three hundred wind mag or something with a scope on it, like a deer rifle bolt action. And the other guy had like an AK forty seven with a banana clip. And they're pointing the gun. I think they were just getting ready to shoot at us when he turned the light on. And they they like kind of like you know looked real surprised and like you know just were startled that they all of a sudden got lit up and they didn't pull the trigger. Yeah, you know, and, and um, didn't money, money, Matt Moneymaker gets airsick in helicopters. If I remember right, he wasn't having a good time on that ride. Oh, was he in the helicopter with me? Yeah, what, I, oh, I think he was looking at this. because they had these lights set up, and Moneymaker just reached up and ripped them all down, dude. So they couldn't, they couldn't. Oh, use like the in, internal lights inside the cockpit, so he could be seen on camera, right? Right, right. He, he just he was all <laughs> flustered, and like. Argh, argh. Like growling, and then he just reaches up and he's trying to like. He goes, "Oh, how do you turn these? How do you dim these?" I'm like, "Well, you dim them right here." And before I can even dim it, he just reaches up and just tore them down and broke them. Oh. <laughs> I don't remember. Like that. Were there scenes of him inside the helicopter then, or that was it just all dark? Was or just, there was just a few, and then then he tore the lights down, and then he couldn't use them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, then he, but then you guys got on the ground and we we're on the was it the north side of the reservation I think. Yeah, yeah, we were by bloody camp up that way. Yeah, so yeah, we were um um I know Renee were on on, on the ground and uh, we were walking logging roads and kind of crisscrossing and choosing, well, let's choose this path. Let's go down this way because we never knew where we were going to go. We'd, we'd never been there before. You know, maybe one of the producers had like scouted the area or something, but we never knew where we were going to be. And I remember uh, going down the roads with Renee and I remember Bisha was one of our producers and a few other folks. I remember who else was there. Um, I found, we found bear prints about a mile before that area. And then Renee was saying she saw eye shine and I, I never saw the eye shine. I kept looking, but uh, she saw eye shine. And to be fair, she saw eye shine a lot though. But um, in this particular case, I heard something in the, bra- in the, in the woods walking, if I remember right. Yeah, and then she saw eye shine and that was encouraging. But when we heard that rock whizzing through the trees and then hitting a, 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 a trunk of a tree, I'm guessing 30 feet above the ground. I mean, I didn't see it, but I heard it. And then it just kind of fell down. Like, what is it? Is that Pachenko? That, that game with the little ball that goes down and the little oh, spikes? Yeah. yeah, plank, 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 plank. Like it hit the, 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 the trunk, which is amazing to begin with. Like if I threw a rock at a trunk, I'm most likely going to miss five or six times before I get it. But this thing... Bam! And then pick, 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 pick all the way down to the ground. 
and and you should have seen Renee's face and Bisha's face. They were, and I don't get me wrong, I was very surprised too. But what a pleasure to see! Like, oh my gosh, come across both of their faces. Yeah, um, yeah I remember like the cameras turned around, and I was just this over the moon. I was so happy about everything because we, because you know, it's it's really hard to get Bigfoots to do anything, let alone on camera. And certainly, what else could have thrown a rock? What else could have possibly thrown a rock? Um, and, and I think Renee later speculated that someone followed us in, but there is no way someone was following us in. But I, I mean, if she doesn't think Bigfoot's are real, she had to explain it somehow, right? Yeah, she kind of fudged that one. She said, oh, remember she said that, um, what's her name? Oh, God, that was with us, the witness. Oh, oh, oh the MMA fighter. Serene. Serene, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was like a like semi-professional or professional oh, MMA yeah, fighter. She, she was professional, yeah. And then, was she? Uh, yeah, she, I know she was gnarly. Yeah, yeah she's cool too. Yeah, because Renee, Renee said she goes. Well, she told me later that 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 it was someone she knew through a rock, and I was like, I talked to her. I said, did she really say that? And Serene's like, I never said anything like that. That was that that wasn't a person. No, there's no way that was a person. I, I mean, I was there. Like, there's literally no way that could have been a person because you know, there's we had therms. We had therms looking around. I didn't see a Sasquatch, but I certainly didn't see a person trailing us. Um, yeah, that was that was that was a really really great event that happened, especially since we captured it on camera. Trevor Kirkman, I want to say I'm a huge fan of the show and podcast, and I've been watching and listening from the beginning. My question is, what are you, your top cryptids other than Bigfoot that you think have the greatest chance of being discovered? I know for me, it's uh, lake serpents, sea serpents that. That's the most evidence there for me. I mean, it just seems to, seems to me it's just a large eel. Um, the common denominator is the lakes and rivers they're seen in have large salmon runs, and they see that these sightings of these serpents happen when the salmon are running. So I think it's just large eels, something like an eel, following the salmon. Yeah, I would agree with you. And another commonality, of course, is the, the um, latitude. Right. Yeah, the latitude. Now, I have a question for you, Bobes. You may know this because I know you're more tuned into the lake and river monster stuff than I am, even though I do really like that stuff. Um, are you aware of sighting reports of these similar animals, like these giant eel things, you know, Loch Ness and these Ogopogo deals and stuff, um, from the southern hemisphere in similar latitudes? Just I've heard of a few in um, Chile. Okay, okay. But I don't, I don't know what the story is. I mean, I've heard two story, two or three stories from down there, Chile and Argentina. Yeah. We'll say South America is a little mute on their cryptids, cryptids in a lot of way. I mean, cause there, we get occasional whispers of Sasquatch like things down there, but not a lot. I mean, I, it, but it's gotta be going on if we get an occasional, you know, report out of there. So who knows what might be walking around down there, like, uh, or swimming around in this case. Yeah, I know like I know Ken Gerhardt was just out here looking for like six foot salamanders in the rivers up here. And I'm like, those things don't exist. I mean, I know they're in the native lore and there's been a few people who said they've seen them, but I I mean I, I used to do when I was working for that timber company, we used to have to do after we uh, you know, logged an area, we had to go clean out the streams. And we had all these contracts. I love that was my favorite was stream cleaning. So I'd, I'd have like three or four guys behind me and I'd go down with a chainsaw and just buck up stuff and throw it out of the, you know, try to restore the flow to the creeks and stuff. And I walked through so many of those up in the Klamath Mountains and out in the Marbles and the Coast Range and mi- miles and miles and miles and miles where I was the first guy coming down. And I never saw any. I mean, I saw about an 18-inch one one time maybe. That was 
maybe 16, 18 inches. I was, that, that thing was big. Yeah, and I think the species that live in similar latitudes over in China, don't they get to be about like maybe three feet long or something? I think so. Yeah, I think that's, and of course, that's giant. That's really big for a salamander, but yeah. You know, Tom Slick was looking for those back in the day. I've, I've seen a photograph of Tom Slick and his son um, checking out Fish Lake, actually, uh, up in Bluff Creek area, looking for the giant salamanders, I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't think those are around. Then you got stuff like dogmen and mothmen. I mean, people are seeing these things, and I don't think they're like a, I don't think they're cryptozoological. I think those are paranormal. Oh, yeah. I'm inclined to think that, too. So, therefore, those probably won't be proven, though, right? I don't think so. Yeah, because as far as the question, like what other ones might be uh, being discovered? Um, you know, if we go back to the hairy hominoids, I think that orang pendex have a real solid chance. You oh, Because pe- yeah. people like uh, Dr. Anna Nakaris are out there at night studying other animals. I think she studies the slow lorises, if I remember. Um, and so she's out there, you know, canvassing the area with trail cameras and all this other stuff. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if she picked up something in the next, you know, five or ten years on her cameras. No, no not at all. Yeah, I expect them to. Oh, yeah, and, um, yeah. What else is there? Like, uh, gosh. Oh, I, well, Maybe, oh thi- thylacine. Yeah, I was going to say thylacines. And uh, I think there's probably still some uh, ground sloths down in the Amazon. Yeah, I would agree with you on that because Dr. David Oren shared that footprint with us. And it definitely wasn't a Bigfoot footprint, but it might have been a sloth print. Yeah. And a couple of those witnesses that we spoke to on our Brazil episode, they definitely didn't see Bigfoots. They saw something else. Yeah. Yeah. Thyla- thylacines are. Tasmanian tiger for those that don't know what that is. Yeah, I think there's a real solid chance those are still around. Okay, well, let's see. Uh, Melissa Underwood. Hi, guys. Have you ever heard of any substantial sightings in the high desert regions of Southern California? Thanks for the podcast. I love it. Oh, that's very kind of you, Melissa. Thank you very much. I appreciate. We uh, both appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. There's high desert reports for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a time of year sort of thing. In fact, uh, both you and I, when we're uh, down, well, when I was living in Southern California, you had a, you had achieved escape velocity by then when we're living elsewhere. But um, yeah, you, uh, we both have done footprint investigations in uh, the Mojave Riverbed. Yeah. Yeah, on the backside of the Angeles National Forest. Um, and But they were also in December, um, a pretty cold time of year, especially in the, the deserts and stuff. And I think that's when you're going to find them in there because they got to move through the area. What is it? Tehachapi, um, oh. in particular, connects the southern Sierra Nevada mountains to um, the, the Angeles National Forest and all that jazz. That has to be the way they're going through there. And that's pretty yeah. high desert. And then um, there's a lot of stuff in East San Diego County, too. I mean, along the border, the border patrol, I got a good thermal clip. I mean, you can't see any details, but. It shows like a, a group of illegal, illegal aliens walking through this Arroyo Wash area. You know, behind, and the they're they're you know five five and a half foot, maybe up to six foot, going through. And then you see this big thing that's you know had to be nine foot plus walking behind them, like stalking them. Mm, yeah, you couldn't see, couldn't see any detail. And then um, yeah, I seen another picture from Border Patrol down there. Well, there yeah, was that some, flap of stuff outside of Borrego, um, Anza Borrego, in the 70s called the Borrego Sandman. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did an episode for a TV show with uh, Cliff Simon was the host's name. Um, I guess he was famous for uh, being in Stargate, like being the bad guy or something in that, that Stargate. But he started looking into cryptid things, and he invited me to go help him track down Sasquatches in the area. And, of course, uh, we were working the, the, the transition zone between the mountains and the desert, which is where you're going to find these things probably or, you know, in that general area. 
um, the transition zones and also in the higher elevations where it's cooler. But there is a ton of very good deserty habitat down there. Um, it used to hold grizzly bears uh, but up until the 1920s, I think. So why wouldn't it hold a few scattered Sasquatches? It just makes yeah. sense. There's so much food down there. Last grizzly bear killed in California was in Orange County. Yeah, I heard like in an orange grove or something, right? Yeah. Outside Anaheim or somewhere? Yeah, or? exactly. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I can't verify it, but I've heard that. So, yeah, I don't see any reason they can't be in there. Just, I don't think you aren't going to look there during the summer, that's for sure, or even spring. It's got to be winter if you're going down in the desert because Sasquatches are large, and that means there's a lot of body heat being produced, and they're covered in hair, which means they're keeping that body heat in. Because you look at the desert mammals, they're all really small with big ears and stuff and long limbs to radiate the heat out, and that is exactly opposite of a Bigfoot. So, Word. Word. This is from Emma Elliott. My question is, have you or will you plan to visit Scandinavia for some Bigfooting? I'm Swedish, and we have fast forests here. Stretching into the Finland, which is isn't Scandinavia, but well worth a visit, which of course is attached to Russia with its vast wilderness and legends of the Yeti and the Almas. Yeah, I mean, I was actually talking about going over there. Uh, I was trying to organize a little speaking gig. I was going to talk at a couple of schools. I was going to be going to uh, Norway and Sweden and Finland. And we actually were looking to do an episode of Funding Bigfoot up there. We went to England instead. We were going to hook up with those Laplanders. Those uh, migratory people that go from Finland into Russia, they're like uh, Inuit, basically type people, like kind of like a almost like an Eskimo people, and they they herd reindeer up there, caribou, and we we got they, 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 the caribou herders have all kinds of stories and interactions with them, but we couldn't get any of them to uh, commit. They, they, you know, they're, they're nomads and they have spotty service at best for cell service. So like getting a hold, of, it was just too risky to go there and not be able to get a hold of any of them where they might not talk on camera because they're pretty superstitious. We'd definitely be into going over there and checking it out. I've gotten six reports out of there, out of, uh, out of uh, Norway. And I've gotten one or two myself actually. Yeah. Norway and Sweden, but all in the upper, well, a couple of them were in the bottom. We're down near the coast on the South coast. Um, Three guys in the Navy saw one from a ship, and I looked on I looked on Google Earth, and it's kind of odd one would be there, but I you could see, I mean it was all connected forest, but yeah, she's right the way it connects in there in, in Russia. I mean, there's and I mean it's like British Columbia, Alaska style. I mean, there's just tons of just tons of room up there and habitat, uh, food. They got they got everything they need up there. It's just cold. Yeah, you know, one of the things I would like to investigate over there is uh, to see if there's any connection between the legends of trolls and Sasquatches. Yeah, I, I dug into that. I, I was I contacted all those troll groups on Facebook and stuff, and none of them were, like, I think I got one or two stories that were even Bigfoot, like, related. The rest were, they kind of were more of the mythology kind of, like, you know, like the big pot, cooking pot, and the warts, and that kind yeah, of stuff. They might have come out of, they might have been born out of something real though, especially keeping the idea of relic hominoids in mind, you know, small little populations of um, hominins or hominoids in various parts of the world. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if that was the, the, the seed that sprouted into the troll legend or mythology. Yeah. I, I have a buddy that lives over there and I, um, I looked, I looked online. I couldn't, I mean, I, I looked and looked, I was trying to find a, um, a group that was like a Bigfoot group, you know, like researching, you know, 
what do they call it? Trolls or whatever they called it over there, almas, almas or whatever. Stolos or something, I think is the word they for troll over there. But I could be wrong, and maybe you can email us and let us know if you know. Yeah, but I I couldn't find any I couldn't find any groups that were like squatching. Yeah, well, I don't know. I'd I'd love to go. Absolutely love to go. Just that's part of the world I'd kind of like to go to anyway. Honestly. Oh yeah. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Okay, next question is from Jenny Harris. What new or what kind of technology not used yet would you like to try? Hmm. Those day-to-night cameras, I mean, night-to-day cameras are pretty awesome, those, those new ones. Oh, those are really cool, yeah. Yeah, they're essentially night vision, but color. Yeah. Yeah, they just like you turn it's like turn it on, and suddenly you're looking at daylight through the scope. And it's like, even though it's like pitch dark, they just use whatever uh, available light there is and amplify it, just like our you know the green night vision that we often use uh, does. That's a really cool technology. What about that? Uh, you know, they're, you know what they're starting to do now. And I was talking to Meldrum about this earlier in the week. Actually, um, uh, there there is a type of lidar that it has such high um, I don't know like definition that they're identifying large mammals with it now and it can see right through the forest cover really yeah yeah that, that's kind of on the cutting edge of technology right now and there some wildlife biologists are starting to use it for the you know the megafauna and stuff and i don't know if we're talking about elephants or, or bison or deer i don't know how big these uh the megafauna needs to be but um if they're doing it even if even if they're doing it with elephants and rhinos at this point it's only a matter of time till they're going to be able to figure out how to do it with like you know cheetahs or you know or mountain lions here in north america um in which case, maybe that might offer us some of the earliest glimpses of Sasquatches, you know? Because yeah. I love the drone technology and the thermal stuff, and, and it has a lot of promise. But I always come back to the one question is, how do you get the Bigfoots to step out from undercover? Because these drones, these thermal imagers cannot see through the trees. But LiDAR sure can. So maybe that's the direction, you know? That would be really interesting. Oh, yeah. I wonder how much that stuff costs. Uh... More than I have. For sure. Oh, you got this one, Cliff. I do have this one. Um, Stefan Snyder um, asks, who's the better driver out of the Finding Bigfoot team? Renee's the worst. Yeah, and Moneymaker is a, is a challenge to relax while sometimes while he's in charge. You know, while he's he behind the crashes. wheel. He never does crash. You, you got to hand it to him. And, and Renee doesn't exactly crash, although she's opened the door on a few poles and ran over somebody's garden in, um, in Portland one time. She backed into another car. Okay, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Backed into yeah. a pole, ran over a, ran over a planner. Yeah, but and 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 Matt is can be very frightening to drive with. But I but you know I I remember one of the episodes we're in French Gulch, so it was a Northern California episode. Maybe it was the Shasta episode or something. Um, we were driving these you know the side by sides around like the sporty sort of you know ones, and uh, I wanted to go with Matt because I knew it would be a lot of fun, and I wanted him to drive. You know, so it, he is he he's a little scary sometimes, but I'll I'll give him that. He never he never touches anything else but the road. Yeah, comes close. Yeah. I mean, he scares the hell out of you sometimes, but yeah, he, he can drive pretty well. Then Cliss, uh, Cliss, yeah, Cliss, better driver than me for sure. Yeah, I, I wanted to say that both. So I didn't want to insult you because I know there were plenty of times I was driving on the road and you were very unhappy with the way I drive. Oh, you drive like a wuss a lot of times, but you can drive, but you can therm and drive at the same time, and that's a skill. That is it. Thank you. That is a skill. 
I know there's been a few times that you were so upset with the way I was driving on the highway or these back roads that you took it upon yourself to reach over and take the wheel from me in spite of the fact that I was the one driving, which was also very frightening for me, I might add. I got to teach you somehow, Cliff. Right. Yeah, you, you almost taught all of us. <laughs> you almost taught all of us to never reach over and take the wheel from someone who was driving. <sighs> Love you, bubs. <laughs> just listen to me. Just follow my directions when we're driving. Everything will be fine. <laughs> oh, we got a Suzanne Ferencheck uh, from Ohio. What is the furthest distance that a Bigfoot has been known to roam based on documented foot tracks collected? Just that 60 miles, huh, isn't it, Cliff? As far as I know, 60 miles. Yeah, as far as footprints go, 60 miles, which is uh, Bluff Creek in the one part of the year and then Highland Palm in the springtime. Yeah, the Bluff Creek stuff is usually August to October um, and then uh, down in Highland Palm in April. Uh, the same individual's footprints were found. Um, other than that, it's actually a much shorter distance. It's five or eight, 10 miles or something like that. But that, that's the furthest um, documented so far, that at least that I've been able to identify. But again, that's why we need more data, um, data, 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 like something to share and, and uh, analyze. Um, because who knows, they might be wandering further than that. Or maybe this, this 60 mile thing was a, a different individual. If we had more data, perhaps we could figure that out. But right now it looks like uh, 60 miles is the limit. And that was a big male and there were uh, smaller footprints, you know, 14 inches or so, 14, 15 inches associated in both of those places that were different individuals. One was Patty and the other one, there's no name for, um, not a lot of footprints came, came out of High and Palm. Uh, that were documented, a lot of stories, and some people took casts, uh, but those casts never were, fell into the hands of somebody like me or Jeff or somebody who could uh, put them in context. Then, yeah, then, um, well, the Oklahoma uh, Area X tagged what we think was a big Bigfoot we talked about earlier. That was in a, a five to seven mile radius, 70 square mile zone that, that they were able to track that one. Yeah, I, I think they stay pretty close to home, you know? I changed my mind. I used to think they were wide ranging, and then maybe they are. Maybe they are. But being an evidence-based researcher, the data is pulling me back, saying I, they kind of hang in a zone um, yeah. for quite a while. I think too. But eight miles as the crow flies. I mean, that, that's a lot of distance out in the mountains. Oh yeah, might as well be like from from here to Utah. Like, like eight miles is inaccessible in an inaccessibly large area to cover with any yeah. you know without a huge concerted effort and a lot of people. Yeah. Okay, uh, here's another one. It's from uh, Gemma Turner. Uh, my question is, what is the most compelling experience-interaction-discovery that you have both experienced and stands out most to you as unforgettable and unquestionably Sasquatch? Maybe that at the water spot. Oh, yeah. The night with the foot stomping and the running. I mean, yeah, I mean, that... That, you didn't hear the first part. Yeah, we were at this place we call the water spot. And I, I went out by myself and um, just had a, yeah, I think I had my camo tarp with me. And I just, like, cloth tarp. It was real quiet. I just went and sat out there. And it was getting dark. And I heard them coming in. Several of them, it was, uh, according to the natives up there, it was five teenage boy rowdy, like a, you know, pack of hooligans. They were coming in. And they were loud and chattering. I mean, I could hear them talking back and forth and, you know, doing little whoops. And I guess they sensed me. And as soon as they sensed me, it just went dead quiet. Then later that night, we had the stomping feet and the whole water incident. 
Well, I thought that uh, that night started with us both going up to the road and laying still for a while. Or am I confusing the next year? I know we did it a couple years in a row and got activity. No, the, that night on the road, prior to that, when it was still daylight, I went out and oh, shot okay. south, of, uh, south of there. Oh, I see. Okay, in the, sure. In the, in the, when you were taking a nap or something. Yeah, that was pretty nuts. When uh, we, we thought we had them around us, we heard knocks and chirp whistles and stuff, and they got pretty close to us, I think. Um, and, uh, and when we got back to camp, uh, seen what, what, what I, I, what we both think went on was that this the Sasquatch on the other side of this big pond we were next to kind of ran out on this log. And then just like, I remember Bobo, you described it to me when it woke us up. Cause I think I, we fell asleep at that point. You described like a pitter patter of feet, like pop, 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 into the water. Yeah. And then you said, Cliff, Cliff, wake up. And I go, what? And when I woke up. Um, I heard just splashing and splashing and splashing. And I was like, holy smokes. Coming towards us. Oh my gosh. It wasn't just so insane, man. It was just, it was amazing. Um, And that spot produced for a couple of years and so many stories from that one location. And yeah, that was pretty amazing. And man, if we had thermals at that point. Oh my God. Oh my God. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was thinking about that story just today um, at the at the museum. Today, a woman came in and told me about uh, how her her mom saw a Sasquatch. Actually, saw three Sasquatches um, uh, on a trip to Canada when she was a little girl. She didn't see them, but she heard them around and stuff. And she's completely convinced they're real. But her mom saw uh, three of them two adults and a juvenile um, in the water, seemingly bathing and splashing around and having fun. And I immediately thought of our experience at the water spot. Yeah. Um, before, well, before that water, before it jumped in that night, we heard something sneak up close to the road. And I, I started talking to him. I said, I know you're there, big guy. Here, I got a, I got a treat for you. And I put out some, um, I put out a can of tuna right there. And then he kind of growled. And I said, you're not scaring us. We're, we're, we're not leaving. We're just going to sit here. We were talking to him nice. And then he just kind of like, it was like a pouty kid. He just stomped his feet. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, that was so loud. Oh, you know what I remember is like we're both laying there, and I, I'm like I'm, I'm laying, and I hear something to my left. I go, "Bobes, are you hearing this one to the left over?" Here? Or I said, "Bobes, are you hearing this one right here?" And he goes, "And you go, dude, the one right there to the right." I went, I thought to myself, "No, it's to the left." And so I sat up. I go, "What?" And I look over to the right, and and then whatever, and the, I, I hear a noise, and what I interpreted as I didn't see it is that I, I think it was belly crawling up to us. Up yeah. the embankment on the other side of the river from the ravine. And then yeah. what I heard, I'm interpreting as the thing standing up, starting to stomp. <laughs> and it's going, oh, 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 oh. and then it's like making its way down back into the ravine. And we're just going, holy crap. Um, yeah. And then the next day we found the impressions of where the thing went down you know, through the rocky soil and everything. It was just like unbelievable activity there. It was so good for a while. Yeah. So I, I guess that's that answers uh, Gemma's question here. So, this comes from Christopher Quintero. Do you think the logging industry knows for sure about the existence of Sasquatch and is keeping it secret for fear of it being declared an endangered species, thus impacting their business? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of think that they, they they probably have a good idea that they're real and it's in their best interest if they remain in the realm of mystery. But I'm not a conspiracy guy either, though. I just think that like well, you know, let's ignore that till we have to deal with it. I don't think they have meetings about it and stuff. It's just kind of a, you know, it's just kind of known. Like we don't, they don't, they don't want to find them now. 
Yeah, they're certainly not helping. And I know that there's more than once um, finding Bigfoot was given access to uh, logging land, you know, like warehouser land or somewhere like that. And one time when we were filming, um, I think it was the Mackenzie River one. Remember they put me up in a tree? Yeah. Um, yeah, that oh, yeah. one, that, that was on logging land. And we got him that night, of course. And I understand that after the episode aired or maybe after we filmed there, um, the people from Warehouser who gave us permission got in trouble for giving us permission. They did. Yeah, that that was my understanding of it. Because they thought, they, well, because well, not every, it's not like everyone that works in the timber industry knows they're real. Like, there's plenty of people that are in the offices that think that it's all BS or most likely BS. That that were like, oh sure, oh my kids like that show. We'll let them go out there. They're not going to find anything. And then we started hearing them. They're like, uh oh, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I've always heard about these, you know, logging uh, contracts with the, the Bigfoot clause in it. And I don't know, Bubs, have you ever seen one of these things? Or is this one of these rumors like black helicopters around Mount St. Helens? Like one of these just uh, easily excusable rumors? I think it's all BS because the guys I worked for had never heard anything like that. And then I know, and I know, I know the guys I went to college with 30 years ago, they're all big, you know, upper management, you know, top of the level timber company guys. And they all say it's total BS too. They yeah, do. yeah. I, I don't think any of it's real, just because somebody somewhere would have done, you know, brought a contract out. You know, like these people are still, still working for the same companies. A lot of these people are retired, um, and you know, where are these contracts? Like any, where are these contracts? They would slip um, out, dude. If, if there was a contract like that, we would have seen one by now. I mean, people people do not keep their mouth shut that well. Not most people. Yeah, yeah. I've often said that these conspiracy theorists put a lot more faith in people than I do. Right. You know? Yeah. But I don't know. I'm I'm pretty cynical about people nowadays. So as I grow old and <laughs> crotchety. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think we're down to our last question. Um, and this has been a lot of fun, both. I've, I've actually really enjoyed this episode. Look at this you know? name. Yeah. Uh, Mateo Coinstriker. Oh really, Mateo Coinstriker? <laughs> really? really? <laughs> oh, you you must be somehow related to Matthew Moneymaker, uh, yeah. Mateo Coinstriker. Um, if a crowd of unworthy plebeians begs you for forgiveness, would you grant it? No. Oh gosh. <laughs> Oh, this is referring to something uh, Moneymaker put on Cryptomundo years and years ago when he, he, he were getting heckled pretty hard for being on Finding Bigfoot, and he was heckling them right back. Matt is wonderful at, at flicking poop right back at people who flip it, flick it at him. Yeah. Um, and, and he referred to the, the people who were giving us all crap as plebeians. So <laughs> that's amazing. I love that question. Oh, but it looks like another one. Okay, now this maybe this is the last one. Um, Lisa uh, Wingham uh, says, hi, what would you do differently if you were in total control during filming of Finding Bigfoot? I would have focused on actually filming a Bigfoot instead of filming us so much. Yeah, yeah. That, that's part of the balancing act, though, because you got to get these people watching TV, not, even people who don't think Bigfoot's real. Let's see, what would I have done? I would think I would have not constrained us so much by time. And I understand why they do it because these episodes cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to do each one of these things. You know, imagine someone gives you a couple hundred thousand dollars and says, "Make me happy." Um, there's got a lot of pressures on, so they do a lot and of planning they, and stuff. And make but, the advertisers happy. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a business. I mean, at the end of the day, Animal Planet, no matter how wonderful of a, a, a network it was to work for, and the people there are really tremendous. They really went to bat for us, the Bigfooters, and they're a, really an outstanding uh, company to work for. I, I can't say that enough. And it's not just I work for them, because I don't work for them right now. I don't have to say that. Um, I'm not under contract in any way, it, they're, but they're really lovely people. Um, but I, I think that if we could have done an episode where we showed up for like, you know, the eight day or nine day thing that we had to do, it takes about eight or nine days to shoot an episode. If we could show up to a place, but cushion it on either side by about a week, you know, or three or four days where if something rad happens and we have a real high potential of getting footage at a spot, we could use that time to go try to do it. Um, I think that would be the one thing I would probably try to change from the pr- production side of things. Um, because there are so many places that I think that if we had a few more days and some concerted effort by the team, we probably would have got a lot closer to getting footage and maybe we even would have succeeded. Um, but because of time constraints and production constraints, and really it's money constraints, um, we weren't allowed to spend that time because, you know, tomorrow's town hall, we already, you know, tomorrow's travel day, we got to get out of here because we got to go to West Virginia day after tomorrow. And those people are waiting for us, you know? So I think that if you could do a production that takes that eight or nine days, but you cushion it on either side, get there three or four days early to do the scouting, to, to get into the area because the scouting was often done with the help of BFRO people, but it sure would have been helpful if, you know, you and I were out there checking it out. Right. And then afterwards, if we could have a few tag end days, like three or four days, it's like, well, that spot showed promise. Let's get out there and see what we can do with it. I think well, that's our, what I would probably change. Our advanced producers got really good at finding the good spots after a couple of years. Oh yeah, they really did. They were basically squatchers in their own right after the show. Except yeah. they didn't care about Bigfoots like we did. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Bubs? What, what would you change? Um, I, like, I like the idea what you said. Um, I would have like that BS about, you can't use an R2-D2 because we already used it in that one episode. It's like not wanting to use things over. It's like we should have had R2-D2, we should have had R2-D2 units on every episode running, like no doubt about it. Oh, yeah, and of course, uh, for our listeners, R2-D2 units are basically these uh, um, mounted thermal imagers on the top of cars that you can control um, via a joystick inside the car that are recording the entire time. So, um, yeah, you know what? Another thing I would like to change is uh, to equip the people back at camp with thermal imagers who are ready and willing to go do something about the Bigfoots that might show up back at base camp. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of missed opportunities in that way. Well, that's what I mean. Like The crew should have had a, a R2-D2 at camp for sure. Yeah, and of course, the crew eventually turned into good Bigfooters as well, for the most part. Um, and they, we we kind of taught them that it is important, and you know these things are real, and they should be respected, and we should be trying to make um, not only good TV, which is all they care about, but also uh, we should we should be trying to get compelling evidence. And eventually, a lot of the production and the camera people and sound folks and they all got on board with that, but not all of them. And if we could have uh, equipped ourselves with a crew. Um, who was 110% into it all the time. That would, I think, gone a long ways. Right. Yeah, but, you know, these they're, they're TV folks. That They've got no dog in this fight. Um, oh, you know what I, I would have done, too? I, I would I mean, I know it's, it's easier said than done, but I would have had a, a dedicated motorhome that we could have, like, or a couple motorhomes so we could have stayed out in the field. If we would have stayed out in the field, we would have had so much more luck. Yeah, I mean, maybe uh, yeah, sleeping in motorhomes instead of a hotel, but... Yeah, how, or have how, tents how outside, have... you know, like have a tent with all, like, uh, just all 
trash bags taped around it, you know, so we could flare in there, you know, without being seen, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how that would affect the, the recharging and all the card changing and sending things back. Yeah. Cause uh, so much of the production depends on that, but yeah, that would have been nice to have. That's for sure. Yeah. There's a yeah. lot of things, a lot of little tidbits that I think could be tweaked. Um, yeah. I'm not sure TV production would go for it. Any of these, but, uh, there's a lot of little things that probably could be tweaked. Yeah, like we like we would have definitely stayed out there, but the camera crews and stuff had contracts that they they had to stay in certain hotels and they had to have so much downtime. And well, yeah, and also think about them. Like we get back at batteries. Oh, that too. Yeah, we get we get back at two, but you know, Chad and everybody else, they were up until three or four every single morning. You know, yeah. doing that. We had it easy. You know, we just had to say things on camera and we go back and go to bed. But when they got back, they had to empty the cards and recharge things and send dailies out and like rewrite the the storyline based on what we actually did versus what they predicted we would do and all that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of responsibility in TV production that uh, people just, I never knew about it until I was on a TV show. Um, it's really overwhelming. I'm surprised anybody wants to do that actually, but yeah. Well, all right, Bobes. What'd you think? Did you enjoy this episode, Bobes? Yeah, I think we should definitely do this again because I mean, when we go to conferences, the Q and A is always people's favorite part. So let's uh, do it again. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if you if you are out there listening, I mean, even if you're not out there listening, go to bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com and then go to the upper right. There's a contact button, and if you have a question for us, it could be anything at all. It could be like Bubba, why are you so beautiful? Um, Cliff, why are you such a jerk all the time? Or anything like that. Anything, or you want to know about the best footprint casts in the world, or whatever, whatever. I'll answer, I'll answer all those right now. Yeah, well, we'll save it for the next episode. You can you can submit your questions at bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com at the contact button. Um, tell all your friends in the world they can listen on the website, but it's better to subscribe. That way you don't miss anything, of course, too. But you can do all that through the website. Very well. Very well. All right, Bobes, why don't you take us home? All right, folks, thanks for listening. As always, if you liked it, hit the like button, and especially share it. If you don't know that might be interested have them listen, give them a listen. We could always use new listeners. So until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 